hover right around here. How's that audio sound? Do I sound good? Do I sound, uh, do I sound like an audiobook? I feel like I need to boost my bass a little bit. Boost my bass, not boost my bass. Hi, I'm Sam. It's been a day. It has been a day. You might be able to hear it in my voice. I am on the tail end. I'm on the mend, but uh, for the past few days, I have been recovering from a cold. Head cold lasted much longer than it should have. Um, but I really am looking forward to getting back into this. We're struggling. Anybody who's been watching for the past, I mean, certainly the past month knows we're struggling. This has been, boy, this is, you know, assuming things go well today, this is going to be my second stream in like three months. That is, uh, I'd like to be a little more proud of that record. You know what I mean? Audio's very excellent. Trying to get rid of that sibilance noise. I don't know if I'm gonna be able to pull it off. I've already got the pop filter on here. There are some fiddly little audio things I can do, but maybe now's not the time. <clears throat> I just had some tea with honey in it, which is excellent for sore throat things, not great for voice things. Makes you kind of gummy down the back of your throat. That's all right. We'll fight through it. Today, chapter 10 of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. As you know, I'm super excited. I'm always super excited to do this. Let me adjust my camera a little bit. There we go. Uh, give myself what's called in the haircut. What's called in the business a haircut. Um, just, uh, you know off a little bit of the top of my head it makes it so that you feel maybe a little closer I don't know that's an industry thing I don't know if like I don't know if it applies here does it apply here is that a thing do you feel closer to me when it's like this as opposed to like this people apparently there's something about that little space above the head that makes people feel weird I don't know what that even means all right we're going to know no haircut because I think it feels weirder with the haircut. Just look at my unruly beard. <laughs> it's a day. That's all right. Okay. So as usual, we're going to do number one, give you my spiel. This is sidecar stories. We're reading through Harry Potter. That's about all you need to know right now. Um, if you've got any thoughts, questions, concerns, things you want to know about what's been happening recently because you don't remember, because my technology hasn't allowed me to stream as much as I want to, so it's been weeks and weeks and weeks since the last thing you saw, go ahead and put it in chat. New characters want to talk about anything like that. Go ahead and put it in chat. We'll talk about it. Either I'll find a place to pause during the chapter or I will wait and we can talk about it uh, when we get to a good stopping point. Number two, review. We're going to go over uh, what happened on last week's stream. Just one chapter last week, and it's also going to be just one chapter this week. Last week was because if we added these two chapters together, it would have been stupid long. This week is because it's actually, it's the long chapter. Last week's chapter was like normal for a chapter. 
Oh boy. Ooh, do you like that? I went ahead and forgot that I had a touch screen. And so you guys got to watch my head fly around like somebody accioed me. Um, so we're going to go into that. And then we're going to get started on chapter 10. I'm very much looking forward to it. All right. Okay, so. First up, in chapter 9, um, the, the whole castle is buzzing. All of Hogwarts is buzzing because we've just found out that Sirius Black was in the castle. He seems to have attacked the fat lady uh, in her portrait. The, it's the, the painting that guards the Gryffindor common room. Um, it would appear that he just missed the students. They were all at the feast. Um, Hermione thinks it's awfully lucky that that happened. Um, they keep all the students down in the, uh, the Great Hall so that the you know teachers can walk around they've got all their students in some little sleeping bags uh so that the the teachers can all keep an eye on all the students instead of sending them back to their dormitories hi luke welcome to the stream we're fighting through as any regular listeners know i'm holding out apparently there's going to be better internet here soon um so i've got my fingers crossed for that until then we're just going to limp on through uh, but thank you for being here. Thank you for limping with me. I appreciate it. Um, let's see. Okay, so uh, Dumbledore is very confident that nobody inside the castle would help. Um, Harry is obviously very suspicious of Snape. Snape seems to be suspicious of something else. We don't get a great idea of what it is. Of course, the school talks for roughly nothing else for... The next couple of days but finally Harry has something to take his mind off of it and that is Quidditch everything's going crazy it's fine there okay uh, they put a new person a new painting in charge of the Gryffindor common room this is Sir Cadigan the uh, over enthusiastic knight so he's making things difficult Professor McGonagall actually wants to pull Harry out of Quidditch for the time being because she fears that uh, he's going to be too exposed to, um, you know, maybe Sirius Black might try to get at him while he's playing Quidditch. Harry fights it and agrees to let him continue to practice as long as there's a teacher present. Malfoy's still faking his arm injury. Um, from the Hippogriff during Hagrid's class, just basically trying to make Hagrid miserable. And then we have a Quidditch match. Now, this is an important one. It's against Slytherin, and uh, they've been practicing. They've been they've been you know scrimmaging. They've been working their game so that they can defeat Slytherin. All of a sudden, the day of the match, Slytherin cancels going to be up against someone else instead they've got a um a uh, i read that i got that a little bit out of order um they had an interesting class where snape uh has to sub in for lupin because lupin isn't feeling well harry is of course immediately suspicious uh, and loses a couple of points expressing his suspicion to snape 
couple of points for the house gone there. Uh, Snape has them write an essay on werewolves. He basically, you know, trying to troll the class by skipping all the way to the end of the book that they are, you know, toward the front of, and insisting that they go to something like werewolves that they haven't studied yet. But, uh... He makes the whole class about that, essentially. Harry doesn't have a lot of time to think about it. The day of the match. The wind is blowing hard. It's a storm. It's a crazy storm. One of the worst they've seen. Uh, suddenly... Uh, of course, like I said, they they uh, realize they're not going to be against Slytherin. They're going to be against Hufflepuff. It's a tough match. Uh, Hufflepuffs are no pushovers on the Quidditch field. And um, the weather is awful. Harry's soaked. He's looking around for the snitch. All of their strategies that they've been working on to help them defeat Slytherin are worthless now because they're against a different team. And then suddenly, Harry sees something in the stands. A lightning strike illuminates an enormous, excuse me, an enormous shaggy black dog. It's in the stands. It's watching him play Quidditch. Very strange. Just holding still. He only gets a glimpse of it, then it disappears. Harry catches sight of the snitch. Goes to go goes to uh you know capture the thing. And then suddenly realizes there's something moving on the field below. Hundreds of Dementors are crowding into the field underneath him, all looking up at him. Imagine how horrifying that would be, you know? Just, I mean, imagine just a bunch of people in black robes, and you are suspended in midair, you know, uh, you know, 200 feet in the air, and you look down, there's just hundreds of people in black robes. You can't see their faces, just shadows looking up at you. That's awful enough, but Harry starts to hear screaming. He doesn't realize what it was at first, but then he realizes the screaming was from his mother. It's a memory that he's having of, as he, you know, as he's falling unconscious, looking down at these Dementors, you know, slipping off of his broom. The screaming woman is a memory he's having of his mother. The night that Voldemort came for him. I think that's enough to make anybody topple off their broom, and Harry does. He ends up unconscious, he ends up in the hospital wing. They've lost the match against Hufflepuff. Fred and George Weasley go into uh, apologetics about how they can still make it, they can still, you know, if, if, if Ravenclaw does this well against Hufflepuff, and then Slytherin does this well against Ravenclaw, etc. But it's not looking good. And then, to top it all off, Harry's broom has flown into the Whomping Willow. He probably won't be riding it again anytime soon. It's in splinters. So, that's what's going on with Chapter 9. Again, anybody who's got anything they want to talk about, go ahead and put it in chat. I'd love to talk about it. That's half the reason I do this. Um, I like doing the voices. Love Harry Potter. But uh, I also love discussing and being able to interact with you guys. So, 
Go ahead and put it in chat if you're interested. Let's do it. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, Chapter 10, The Marauder's Map. Madame Pomfrey insisted on keeping Harry in the hospital wing for the rest of the weekend. He didn't argue or complain, but he wouldn't let her throw away the shattered remains of his Nimbus 2000. He knew he was being stupid. He knew that the Nimbus was beyond repair, but Harry couldn't help it. He felt as though he'd lost one of his best friends. He had a stream of visitors, all intent on cheering him up. Haggard sent him a bunch of earwiggy flowers that looked like yellow cabbages, and Ginny Weasley, blushing furiously, turned up with a get-well card she had made herself, which sang shrilly unless Harry kept it shut under a bowl of fruit. The Gryffindor Quidditch team visited again on Sunday morning, this time accompanied by Wood, who told Harry, in a hollow, dead sort of voice, that he didn't blame him in the slightest. Ron and Hermione left Harry's bedside only at night. But nothing anyone said or did could make Harry feel any better, because they knew only half of what was troubling him. He hadn't told anyone about the Grimm, not even Ron and Hermione, because he knew Ron would panic and Hermione would scoff. The fact remained, however, that he had now appeared twice. Oh, that he had now seen it twice and both appearances had been followed by near-fatal accident. The first time he had nearly been run over by the night bus, the second fallen fifty feet from his broomstick. Was the Grimm going to haunt him until he actually died? Was he going to spend the rest of his life looking over his shoulder for the beast? And then there were the Dementors. Harry felt sick and humiliated every time he thought of them. Everyone said the Dementors were horrible but no one else seemed to collapse every time they went near one. No one else heard echoes in their head of their dying parents. Because Harry knew who that screaming voice belonged to now. He had heard her words, heard them over and over again during the night hours in the hospital wing, while he lay awake, staring at the strips of moonlight on the ceiling. When the Dementors approached him, he heard the last moments of his mother's life. Her attempts to protect him, Harry, from Lord Voldemort, and Voldemort's laughter as he murdered her. Harry dozed fitfully, sinking into dreams full of clammy, rotted hands and petrified pleading, jerking awake to dwell again on his mother's voice. It was a relief to return to the noise and bustle of the main school on Monday, where he was forced to think about other things, even if he had to endure Draco Malfoy's taunting. Malfoy was almost beside himself with glee at Gryffindor's defeat. He had finally taken off his bandages, and celebrated having the full use of both arms again by doing spirited imitations of Harry falling off of his broom. Malfoy spent much of their next potions class doing Dementor imitations across the dungeon. Ron finally cracked and flung a large, slippery crocodile heart at Malfoy, which hit him in the face and caused Snape to take fifty points from Gryffindor. If Snape's teaching defense against the dark arts again, I'm scarving off, said Ron as they headed toward Lupin's classroom after lunch. 
Check who's in there, Hermione. Hermione peered around the classroom door. It's okay. Professor Lupin was back at work. I realize I'm using this picture more than once, but uh, I really like this picture. I like it a lot. It certainly looked as though he had been ill. His old robes were hanging more loosely on him, and there were dark shadows beneath his eyes. Nevertheless, he smiled at the class as they took their seats, and they burst at once into an explosion of complaints about Snape's behavior while Lupin had been ill. It's not fair. He was only fitting in. Why should he give us homework? We don't know anything about werewolves. Two rolls of parchment. Did you tell Professor Snape we haven't covered them yet? Lupin asked, frowning slightly. The babble broke out again. Yes, but we're really behind. He wouldn't listen. Two rolls of parchment. Professor... Excuse me. Professor Lupin smiled at the look of indignation on every face. Don't worry. I'll speak to Professor Snape. You won't have to do the essay. Oh, no, said Hermione, looking very disappointed. I've already finished it. They had a very enjoyable lesson. Professor Lupin had brought along a glass box containing a hinky punk, a little one-legged creature who looked as though he were made of wisps of smoke, rather frail and harmless-looking. Lures travelers into bogs, said Professor Lupin as they took notes. You notice the lantern dangling from his hand? Hops ahead. People follow the light, and then... The hinky punk made a horrible squelching noise against the glass. When the bell rang, everyone gathered up their things and headed for the door, Harry among them, but... Wait a moment, Harry, Lupin called. I'd like a word. Harry doubled back and watched Professor Lupin covering the hinky punk's box with a cloth. I heard about the match, said Lupin, turning back to his desk and starting to pile books into his briefcase. I'm sorry about your broomstick. Is there any chance of fixing it? No, said Harry. The tree smashed it to bits. Lupin sighed. They planted the Whomping Willow the same year that I arrived at Hogwarts. Hmm. People used to play a game, trying to get near enough to touch the trunk. In the end, a boy called Davy Gudgeon nearly lost an eye. We were forbidden to go near it. No broomstick would have stood a chance. Did you hear about the Dementors, too? said Harry with difficulty. Lupin looked at him quickly. Yes, I did. I don't think any of us have seen Professor Dumbledore that angry. They've been growing restless for some time, furious at his refusal to let them inside the grounds. I suppose they were the reason that you fell? Yes, said Harry. He hesitated, and then the question he had to ask burst from him before he could stop himself. Why? 
Why do they affect me like that? Am I just... It has nothing to do with weakness, said Professor Lupin sharply, as though he had read Harry's mind. The Dementors affect you worse than others because there are horrors in your past that others have. A ray of wintry sunlight fell across the classroom, illuminating Lupin's gray hairs and the lines on his young face. Dementors are among the foulest creatures that will this earth. They infest the darkness, the filthiest places. They glory in decay and despair. They drain peace, hope, and happiness out of the air around them. Even muggles fear their presence, though they can't see them. Get too near a Dementor, and every good feeling, every happy memory, will be sucked out of you. If it can, the Dementor will feed on you long enough to reduce you to something like itself, soulless and evil. You'll be left with nothing but the worst experiences of your life, and the worst that happened to you, Harry, is enough to make anyone fall off their broom. You've done nothing to feel ashamed of. When they get near me, Harry stared at Lupin's desk, his throat tight. I can f hear Voldemort murdering my mum. Lupin made a sudden motion with his arm as though to grip Harry's shoulder, but thought better of it. There was a moment's silence, then... Why did they have to come to the match? said Harry bitterly. They're getting hungry, said Lupin coolly, shredding his briefcase with a snap. Dumbledore won't let them into the school, so their supply of human prey has dried up. I don't think they could resist the large crowd around the Quidditch field. All that excitement. Emotions running high. It was their idea of a feast. Azkaban must be terrible, Harry muttered. Lupin nodded grimly. The fortress is set on a tiny island, way out to sea, but they don't need walls and water to keep their prisoners in, not when they're all trapped inside their own heads, incapable of a single cheerful thought. Most of them go mad within weeks. But Sirius Black escaped from them, Harry said slowly. He got away. Lupin's briefcase slipped from the desk. He had to stoop quickly to catch it. Yes, he said, straightening up. Black must have found a way to fight them. I wouldn't have believed it possible. Dementors are supposed to drain a wizard of his powers if he's left with them too long. You made that Dementor on the train back off, said Harry suddenly. There are... Certain defences one can use, said Lupin. Well, there is only one Dementor on the train. The more there are, the more difficult it becomes to resist. What defences? said Harry at once. Can you teach me? I don't pretend to be an expert at fighting Dementors, Harry. Quite the contrary. But if the Dementors come to another Quidditch match, I need to be able to fight them. Lupin looked into Harry's determined face, hesitated, 
then said, Well, all right. I'll try to help, but I'll have to wait until next term, I'm afraid. I've got a lot to do before the holidays. I chose a very inconvenient time to fall ill. What with the promise of anti-dementor lessons from Lupin, the thought that he might never have to hear his mother's death again, and the fact that Ravenclaw flattened Hufflepuff in their Quidditch match in the end of November, Harry's mood took a definite upturn. Gryffindor were not out of the running after all, although they could not afford to lose another match. Wood became repossessed of his manic energy, and worked his team as hard as ever in the chilly haze of rain that persisted into November. Harry saw no hint of a Dementor within the grounds. Dumbledore's anger seemed to be keeping them at their stations at the entrances. Two weeks before the end of the term, the sky suddenly lightened to a dazzling opaline white, and the muddy grounds were revealed once more and the muddy grounds were revealed one morning covered in glittering frost. Inside the castle, there was a buzz of Christmas in the air. Professor Flitwick, the charms teacher, had already decorated his classroom with shimmering lights that turned out to be real fluttering fairies. The students were all happily discussing their plans for the holidays. Both Ron and Hermione had decided to remain at Hogwarts, and though Ron said it was because he couldn't stand two weeks with Percy, and Hermione insisted she needed to use the library, Harry wasn't fooled. They were doing it to keep him company, and he was very grateful. To everyone's delight except Harry's, there was to be another Hogsmeade trip on the very last weekend of the term. We can all do our Christmas shopping there, said Hermione. Mum and Dad would really love those tooth-flossing string mints from do- Mum and Dad would really love those tooth-flossing string mints from Honeydukes. You guys may or may not remember, but Hermione's parents are both dentists. Resigned to the fact that he would be the only third year staying behind again, Harry borrowed a copy of Witch Broomstick from Wood and decided to spend the day reading up on the different makes. He had been riding one of the school brooms at team practice, an ancient shooting star, which is very slow and jerky. He definitely needed a new broom of his own. On the Saturday morning of the Hogsmeade trip, Harry bid goodbye to Ron and Hermione, who were wrapped in cloaks and scarves. They turned up the marble staircase alone and headed back toward the Gryffindor Tower. Oh, excuse me. On the Saturday morning of the Hogsmeade trip, Harry bid goodbye to Ron and Hermione, who were wrapped in cloaks and scarves, then turned up the marble staircase alone and headed back toward the Gryffindor Tower. Snow had started to fall outside the windows, and the castle was very still and quiet. Psst. Hurry. He turned, halfway along the third-floor corridor, to see Fred and George peering out at him from behind a statue of a hump-backed, one-eyed witch. What are you doing? said Harry curiously. How come you're not going to Hogsmeade? We've come to give you a bit of festive cheer before we go, 
said Fred with a mysterious wink. Come in here. He nodded toward an empty classroom to the... He nodded toward an empty classroom to the left of the one-eyed statue. Harry followed Fred and George inside. George closed the door quietly and then turned, beaming, to look at Harry. Early Christmas present for you, Harry, he said. Fred pulled something from inside of his cloak with a flourish and laid it on one of the desks. It was a large, square, very worn piece of parchment with nothing written inside it. It was a large, square, very worn piece of parchment with nothing written on it. Harry, suspecting one of Fred and George's jokes, stared at it. What is that supposed to be? This, Harry. This is the secret to our success, said George, patting the parchment fondly. It's a wrench, giving it to you, said Fred. But we decided last night... Your need's greater than ours. Anyway, we know it by heart, said George. We bequeath it to you. We don't really need it anymore. And what do I need with a bit of old parchment? said Harry. A bit of old parchment, said Fred, closing his eyes with a grimace as though Harry had mortally offended him. Explain, George. Well... When we were here first year, Harry, young, carefree, and innocent. Harry snorted. He doubted whether Fred and George had ever been innocent. Well, more innocent than we are now. We got into a spot of bother with Filch. We let off a dung bomb in the corridor and it upset him for some reason. So he hauled us off to his office and started making threats to us as usual. Detention. Disembowelment. And we couldn't help noticing a drawer in one of his filing cabinets marked Confiscated and Highly Dangerous. Don't tell me, said Harry, starting to grin. Well, what would you have done? I'll try that again. Well, what would you have done? said Fred. George caused a diversion by dropping another dung bomb. I whipped the drawer open and grabbed this. It's not as bad as it sounds, you know, said George. We don't reckon Filch ever found out how to work it. He probably suspected what it was, though, or he wouldn't have confiscated it. And you know how to work it? Oh, yes, said Fred, smirking. This little beauty's taught us more than all the teachers in this school. You're winding me up, said Harry, looking at the ragged old bit of parchment. Oh, are we? said George. He took out his wand, touched the parchment lightly, and said, I solemnly swear that I am up to no good. And at once, thin ink lines began to spread like a spider's web from the point that George's wand had touched. They joined each other. They crisscrossed. They fanned into every corner of the parchment. Then words began to blossom across the top. Great curly green words that proclaimed... Misters Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs, purveyors of aids to magical mischief-makers, are proud to present the Marauder's Map. It was a map showing every detail of Hogwarts Castle and the grounds. But the truly remarkable thing were the tiny ink dots moving around it, each labeled with a name in minuscule writing. 
Astounded, Harry bent over it. A labeled dot on the top left corner showed that Professor Dumbledore was pacing his study. The, the caretaker's cat, Mrs. Norris, was prowling the second floor, and Pease the poltergeist was currently bouncing around the trophy room. And as Harry's eyes traveled up and down the familiar corridors, he noticed something else. This map showed a set of passages he had never entered, and many of them seemed to lead... Right in the Hogsmeade, said Fred, tracing one of them with his finger. There are seven of them in all. Now, Filch knows about these four, he pointed them out, but we're sure that we're the only ones who know about these. Don't bother with the one behind the mirror on the fourth floor. We used it last winter, but it's caved in, completely blocked. And we don't reckon anyone used this one. We don't reckon anyone's used this one before, because the Wumpin' Willow's planted right over the entrance. But this one here, this one leads right into the cellar of the Dukes. We've used it loads of times, and as you might have noticed, the entrance is right outside this room, through that one-eyed old crone's hump. Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot and Prongs, sighed George, patting the heading of the map. We owe them so much. Noble men, working tirelessly to help the of lawbreakers, said Fred solemnly. Right, said George briskly. Don't forget to wipe it after you've used it. Or anyone can read it, Fred said warningly. Just tap it again and say, Mischief managed, and it'll go, and it'll go blank. So, young Harry, said Fred, in an uncanny impersonation of Percy. Oh boy, oh boy, that's a sentence. In an uncanny impersonation of Percy. Mind you behave yourself. See you in Honey Dukes, said George, winking. They left the room both smirking in a satisfied sort of way. Harry stood there, gazing at the miraculous map. He watched the tiny ink Mrs. Norris turn left and pause to sniff at something on the floor. If Filch really didn't know, he wouldn't have to pass the Dementors at all. He... But even as he stood there, flooded with excitement, something Harry had once heard Mr. Weasley say came floating out of his memory. Never trust anything that can think for itself if you can't see where it keeps its brain. This map was one of those dangerous magical objects Mr. Weasley had been warned against, had been warning against. Aids for magical mischief makers. But then, Harry reasoned, he only wanted to use it to get into Hogsmeade. It wasn't as though he was trying to steal anything or attack anyone, and Fred and George had been using it without anything horrible happening. Harry traced the secret passage to Honeydukes with his finger. Then, quite suddenly, as though following orders, he rolled up the map, stuffed it inside his robes, and hurried to the door of the classroom. He opened it a couple of inches. There was no one outside. Very carefully, he edged out of the room and behind the statue of the one-eyed witch. What did he have to do? 
He pulled out the map again and saw, to his astonishment, that two new ink figures had appeared on it, labeled... Oh, what am I... What? He pulled out the map again and saw, to his astonishment, that a new ink figure had appeared upon it, labeled Harry Potter. This figure was standing exactly where the real Harry was standing, about halfway down the third floor corridor. Harry watched carefully. His little ink self appeared to be tapping the witch with his minute wand. Harry quickly took out his real wand and tapped the statue. Nothing happened. He looked back at the map. The tiniest speech bubble had appeared next to his figure. The word inside said, Descendium. Descendium, Harry whispered, tapping the stone witch again. At once, the statue's hump opened wide enough to admit a fairly thin person. Harry glanced quickly up and down the corridor, then tucked the map away again, hoisted himself into the hole head first, and pushed himself forward. He slid a considerable way down what felt like solid stone, then landed on cold, damp earth. He stood up, looking around. It was pitch dark. He held up his wand, muttered, Lumos, and saw that he was in a very narrow, low, earthy passage. He raised the map, tapped it with the tip of his wand, and muttered, Mischief managed. The map went blank at once. He folded it carefully, tucked it inside his robes, and then, heart beating fast, both excited and apprehensive, he set off. The passage twisted and turned, more like the burrow of a giant rabbit than anything else. Harry hurried along it, stumbling now and then on the uneven floor, holding his wand out in front of him. It took ages, but Harry had the thought of honeydukes to sustain him. After what felt like an hour, the passage began to rise. Panting, Harry sped up, his face hot, his feet very cold. Ten minutes later, he came to the foot of some worn stone steps, which rose out of sight above him. Careful not to make any noise, Harry began to climb. A hundred steps. Two hundred steps. He lost count as he climbed, watching his feet. Then, without warning, his head hit something hard. It seemed to be a trap door. Harry stood there, massaging the top of his head, listening. He couldn't hear any sounds above him. Very slowly, he pushed the trapdoor open and peered over the ledge. He was in a cellar, which was full of wooden crates and boxes. Harry climbed out of the trapdoor and replaced it. It blended so perfectly with the dusty floor that it was almost impossible to tell what was there. Harry crept slowly toward the wooden staircase that led upstairs. Now he could definitely hear voices, not to mention the tinkle of a bell and the opening and shutting of a door. Wondering what he ought to do, he suddenly heard a door open much closer at hand. Somebody was about to come downstairs. "'And get another box of jelly slugs, dear. They've nearly cleaned us out,' said a woman's voice. A pair of feet was coming down the staircase. Harry leapt behind an enormous crate and waited for the footsteps to pass. He heard the man shifting boxes against the opposite wall. He might not get another chance. 
Quickly and silently, Harry dodged out from his hiding place and climbed the stairs. Looking back, he saw an enormous backside of a tiny bald head buried in a box. He found himself behind the counter of Honeydukes. Oh, excuse me. Harry reached the door at the top of the stairs, slipped through it, and found himself behind the counter of Honeydukes. He ducked, crept sideways, and then straightened up. Honeydukes was so crowded with Hogwarts students that no one looked twice at Harry. He edged among them, looking around, and suppressed a laugh as he imagined the look that would spread over Dudley's piggy face if he could see where Harry was now. There were shelves upon shelves of the most succulent-looking sweets imaginable. Creamy chunks of nougat, shimmering pink squares of coconut ice, fat honey-colored toffees, hundreds of different kinds of chocolate in neat rows. In neat rows. There was a large barrel of every flavor beans, and another of fizzing whizbees, the levitating sherbet balls that Ron had mentioned. Along yet another wall were special effects sweets. Drupal's best blowing gum, which filled the room with bluebell-colored bubbles that refused to pop for days. The strange, splintery, tooth-flossing string mints. Tiny black pepper imps. Breathe fire for your friends. Ice mice. Hear your teeth chatter and squeak. Peppermint creams shaped like toads. Hop realistically in your stomach. Fragile sugar-spun quills and exploding bonbons. Harry squeezed himself through a crowd of sixth years and saw a sign hanging in the furthest corner of the shop. Unusual tastes. Ron and Hermione were standing underneath it, examining a tray of blood-flavored lollipops. Harry sneaked up behind them. Oh, no, Harry won't want one of those. They're for vampires, I expect, Hermione was saying. What about these? said Ron, shoving a jar of cockroach clusters under Hermione's nose. Definitely not, said Harry. Ron nearly dropped the jar. Harry? squealed Hermione. What are you doing here? How, how did you... Whoa, said Ron, looking very impressed. You've learned how to operate. Of course I haven't, said Harry. He dropped his voice so that none of the sixth years could hear him, and told them all about the Marauder's Map. How come Fred and George never get? How come Fred and George never gave it to me? said Ron, outraged. I'm their brother. But Harry isn't going to keep it, said Hermione, as though the idea was ludicrous. He's going to hand it in to Professor McGonagall, aren't you, Harry? No, I am not, said Harry. Are you mad? said Ron, goggling at Hermione. Hand in something that good? If I hand it in, I've got to say where I got it. Filch would know that Fred and George had nicked it. But what about Sirius Black? Hermione hissed. He could be using one of the passages on that map to get into the castle. The teachers have got to know. He can't be getting in through a passage, said Harry quickly. There are seven secret tunnels on the map, right? Fred and George reckon Filch already knows about four of them. And of the other three, one of them's caved in so that no one can get through it. One of them's got to the Whomping Willow planted over the entrance so you can't get out of it. And the one I just came through, well, it's really hard to see the entrance down in the cellar, so unless he knew that it was there... 
Harry hesitated. What if Black did know the passage was there? Ron, however, cleared his throat significantly and pointed to a notice pasted on and pointed to a notice pasted on the inside of the sweet shop door. By order of the Ministry of Magic, customers are reminded that until further notice, Dementors will be patrolling the streets of Hogsmeade every night after sundown. This measure has been put in place for the safety of Hogsmeade residents and will be lifted upon the recapture of Sirius Black. It is therefore advisable that you complete your shopping well before nightfall. Merry Christmas. See, said Ron quietly, I'd like to see Black try and break into Honeydukes with Dementors swarming all over the place. Anyway, Hermione, the Honeydukes owners would hear the breaking, wouldn't they? They live over the shop. Yes, but, but... Hermione seemed to be struggling to find another problem. Look, Harry still shouldn't be coming into Hogsmeade. He hasn't got a signed form. If anyone finds out, he'll be in so much trouble. And it's not nightfall yet. What if Sirius Black turns up today? Now! <laughs> You'd have a job spotting Harry in this, said Ron, nodding through the mullioned windows at the thick, swirling snow. Come on, Hermione. It's Christmas. Harry deserves a break. Hermione bit her lip, looking extremely worried. Are you going to report me? Harry asked her, grinning. Oh, of course not, but honestly, Harry. Have you seen the fizzing whizbees, Harry? said Ron, grabbing him and leading them leading him over to their barrel. And the jelly slugs? And the acid pops? Fred gave me one of those when I was seven. Burnt a hole right through my tongue. I remember Mum walloping him with a broomstick. Ron stared broodingly into the acid pop box. Do you reckon that Fred would take a bit of cockroach cluster if I told him they were peanuts? When Ron and Hermione had paid for all their sweets, the three of them left Honeydukes for the blizzard outside. Hogsmeade looked like a Christmas card. The little thatched cottages and shops were all covered in a thin layer of crisp snow. There were holly wreaths on the doors, and strings of enchanted candles hanging in the trees. Harry shivered. Unlike the other two, he didn't have his cloak. They headed up the street, heads bowed against the wind, Ron and Hermione shouting through their scarves. That's the post office. Zonko's is up there. We could go up to the Shrieking Shack. I'll tell you what, said Ron, his, his teeth chattering. Should we go for a butter beer and the three broomsticks? Harry was more than willing. The wind was fierce and his hands were freezing, so they crossed the road, and in a few minutes they were entering the tiny inn. It was extremely crowded, noisy, warm, and smoky. A curvy sort of woman with a pretty face was serving a bunch of rowdy warlocks up at the bar. That's Madame Rose Murta, said Ron. I'll get the drinks, shall I? he added going slightly red. Harry and Hermione made their way to the back of the room, where there was a small vacant table between the window and a handsome Christmas tree, which stood next to the fireplace. Ron came back five minutes later, carrying three foaming tankards of hot butterbeer. 
Merry Christmas, he said happily, raising his tankard. Harry drank deeply. It was the most delicious thing he'd ever tasted and seemed to heat every bit of him from the inside. A sudden breeze ruffled his hair. The door of the three broomsticks had opened again. Harry looked over the rim of his tankard and choked. Professors McGonagall and Flitwick had just entered the pub with a flurry of snowflakes, shortly followed by Hagrid, who was deep in conversation with a portly man in a lime-green bowler hat and pinstriped cloak. Cornelius Fudge, Minister of Magic. In an instant, Ron and Hermione had both placed hands on top of Harry's head and forced him on, uh, off of his stool and under the table. Dripping with butterbeer and crouching out of sight, Harry clutched his empty tankard and watched the teacher's and Fudge's feet move toward the bar. Pause, then turn and walk right toward him. Somewhere above him, Hermione whispered, Mobiliabus! The Christmas tree beside their table rose a few inches off the ground, drifted sideways, and landed with a soft thump right in front of their table, hiding them from view. Staring down the dense lower branches, staring through the dense lower branches, Harry saw four sets of chair legs move back from the table beside theirs, then heard the grunts and sighs of the teachers as they and the minister sat down. Next, he saw another pair of feet, wearing sparkly turquoise high heels, and heard a woman's voice. A small gillywater? Mine, said Professor McGonagall's voice, for pints of mulled mead. Ah, Rosemurta, said Hagrid. Just to be clear, I also have no idea what that is. It's just T-A, ta, Rosemurta, said Hagrid. A cherry syrup and soda with ice and umbrella? Mmm, said Professor Flitwick, smacking his lips. So you'll be the red currant rum, Minister? Uh, thank you, uh, Rosemary, my dear, said Fudge's voice. Lovely to see you again, I must say. Um, have one for yourself, won't you? Uh, come and join us. Well, thank you very much, Minister. Harry watched the glittering heels march away and back again. His heart was pounding uncomfortably in his throat. Why hadn't it occurred to him that this was the last weekend of term for the teachers, too? And how long were they going to sit there? He needed time to sneak back into Honeydukes if he wanted to return to school tonight. Hermione's leg gave a nervous twitch next to him. So, what brings you to this neck of the woods, Minister? came Madame Rosemurta's voice. Harry saw the lower part of Fudge's thick body twist in his chair as though he were checking for eavesdroppers. Then he said in a quiet voice, What, um, what else, my dear, but, uh, Sirius Black? <laughs> I, I dare say you heard what happened at the school at Halloween. I did hear a rumor, admitted Madame Rosmerta. Did you tell the whole pubagrid? said Professor McGonagall exasperatedly. Do you think that black is still in the area, Minister? whispered Madame Rosmerta. I'm sure of it, said Fudge shortly. You know that the Dementors have searched my pub twice, said Madame Rosmerta, 
a slight edge to her voice. Scared all of my customers away. It is very bad for business, Minister. Rosmoda, my dear, I don't like them. I don't like them any more than you do, said Fudge uncomfortably. A necessary precaution. Uh, unfortunate, but there you are. I've just met with some of them. They are in a fury against Dumbledore. He won't let them inside the castle grounds. I should think not, said Professor McGonagall sharply. How are we supposed to teach with those horrors floating around? Here, here, squeaked tiny Professor Flitwick, whose feet were dangling a foot from the ground. All the same, demurred Fudge, they are here to uh, protect you all from uh, something much worse. We all know what Black is uh, capable of. You know, I still have trouble believing it said Madame Rosmerta thoughtfully. Of all the people to go over to the dark side, Sirius Black was the last I'd have thought. I mean, I remember him from when he was a boy at Hogwarts. If you had told me then what he was going to become, I would have said you, you'd had too much mead. You, you don't know the half of it, said Fudge gruffly. The worst he did isn't widely known. The worst? said Madame Rosmerta, her voice alive with curiosity. Worse than murdering all of those poor people, you mean? This is the conversation I wish I was acting out when I wasn't sick. I wish I was doing all of these voices justice. But, uh, as I said, we limp along and we limp together. Maybe I'll do, maybe I'll do this one over again. It seems like I've been dropping a, quite a few frames on the way here, so we'll see how the recording looks. Eh, maybe I'll just do this this uh, conversation again, because this is great. I like when I, I like when you've got a lot of people in the same room, so I'm doing a bunch of different voices. I don't know, I enjoy it. But yeah, like I said, I'm I'm dropping frames all over the place. It's barely holding on, but I might have to do this chapter again. Maybe when I'm not sick. Hmm. It wouldn't be the most terrible thing. That's all I'm saying, you know. You know, that's all I'm saying. The worst, said Madame Rosmerta, her voice alive with curiosity. Worse than murdering all of those poor people, you mean? I uh, certainly do, said Fudge. I can't believe that. What could possibly be worse? You say that you remember, remember him at Hogwarts, Rosmerta murmured Professor McGonagall. Do you remember who his best friend was? Naturally, said Madame Rosmerta with a small laugh. Never saw one without the other, did you? The number of times I had to... Oh, the number of times I had them in here. Oh, they used to make me laugh. Quite the double act. Sirius Black and James Potter. Harry dropped his tankard with a loud clunk. Ron kicked him. Precisely, said Professor McGonagall. Black and ringleaders of their little gang, both very bright, of course, exceptionally bright, in fact, but I don't think we've ever had such a pair of troublemakers. I don't know, chuckled Hagrid. Fred and George Weasley could give them a run for their money. You'd have thought that Black and Potter were brothers, chimed in Professor Flitwick. 
inseparable. Um, of course they were, said Fudge. Potter trusted Black uh, beyond all his other friends. Nothing changed when they left school. Black was the best man when James married Lily. Then they named him Godfather to Harry. Harry has no idea, of course. You can imagine how the idea would uh, uh, torment him. Because Black turned out to be in league with you-know-who, whispered Madame Rosmerta. Worse even than that, my dear. Fudge dropped his voice and proceeded in a low sort of rumble. Not many people were aware that uh, the Potters knew you-know-who was after them. Dumbledore, who was, of course, working tirelessly against you-know-who, um, had a, a number of useful spies. One of them tipped him off, and he alerted and Lily at once. He advised them to go into hiding. Well, um, of course, uh, you-know-who wasn't an easy person to hide from. Dumbledore told them that their best chance was the Fidelius charm. How does that work? said Madame Rosmerta, breathless with interest. Professor Flitwick cleared his throat. An immensely complicated spell, he said squeakily. "'involving the magical concealment of a secret inside a single living soul. "'The information is hidden inside the chosen person or secret keeper "'and is henceforth impossible to find, "'unless, of course, the secret keeper chooses to divulge it. "'As long as the secret keeper refused to speak, "'you know who could search the village where James and Lily were staying for years "'and never find them, not even if he had his nose pressed against their sitting-room window.' So, Black was the Potter's secret keeper, whispered Madame Rosmerta. Naturally, said Professor McGonagall. James Potter told Dumbledore that Black would rather die than tell them where they were. Oh, would rather die than tell where they were. That Black was going to interhide him himself. Oh, mm, boy. This is what I mean. This is what I mean. It's a model. James told Dumbledore that Black would rather die than tell where they were, that Black was going into hiding himself, and yet Dumbledore remained worried. I remember him offering to be the Potter's secret keeper himself. He suspected Black? gasped Madame Rosmerta. He was sure that somebody close to the Potters had been keeping you-know-who informed of their movements, said Professor McGonagall darkly. Indeed, he had suspected for some time that someone on our side had turned traitor, and was passing a lot of information to you-know-who. But James Potter insisted on using black. Mm, he did, said Fudge heavily. And then, barely a week after the Fidelius charmed had been performed, Black betrayed them, breathed Madame Rosmerta. He did indeed. Black was uh, tired of his double agent role. He was already uh, declaring his... Oh, he was uh, ready to declare his support openly for you-know-who, and he seems to have planned this for the moment of the Potter's death. But, as we all know, you-know-who uh, met his downfall in little Harry Potter. Uh, power's gone, horribly weakened. He, he fled. And this left Black in a very nasty position indeed. His master had fallen at the very moment when he, Black, who uh, had shown his true colours at a traitor. 
His master had fallen at the very moment when he, Black, had shown his true colours as a traitor. He, he had no choice but to run for it. Filthy, stinking turncoat, Hagrid said, so loudly that half the bar went quiet. Shh, said Professor McGonagall. I met him, growled Hagrid. I must have been the last to see him before he killed all them people. It was me what rescued Harry from Lily and James's house after they was killed. Just got him out of the ruin, poor little thing, with a great slash across his forehead. And his parents dead, and Sirius Black turns up on that flying motorbike he used to ride. Never occurred to me what he was doing there. I didn't know he'd been Lillian James's secret keeper. I thought he just heard of the news on you know who's attack and came to see what he could do. He was white and shaking, he was. You know what I did? I comforted the murdering traitor! Hagrid roared. Hagrid, please, said Professor McGonagall. Keep your voice down. How was I supposed to know he wasn't upset about Lily and James? It was you know who he cared about. Then he says, Give Harry to me, Hagrid. I'm his godfather. I'll look after him. Ah, but I had my orders from Dumbledore. Black, no. Dumbledore said Harry was to go to his aunt and uncle. Black argued, but in the end he gave in. Told me to take his motorbike to get Harry there. I won't need it anymore, he says. I should have known something fishy was going on then. He loved that motorbike. What was he giving it to me for? Why wouldn't he need it anymore? Fact was, it was too easy to trace. Dumbledore knew he'd been the Potter's secret keeper. Black knew he was going to have to run for it for the night. Black knew he was going to have to run for it that night. Knew it was a matter of hours before the Ministry was after him. But what if I'd given Harry to him, eh? I bet he'd have pitched him off the motorbike halfway out to sea. His best friend, son. That when a wizard has gone over to the dark side, there's nothing and no one that matters to him anymore. A long silence followed Hagrid's story. Then Madame Rosmerta said with some satisfaction, But he didn't manage to disappear, did he? The Ministry of Magic caught up with him the next day. Uh, alas, if only we had, said Fudge bitterly. It uh, was not we who found him, it was little Peter Pettigrew. One of the Potter's friends. Maddened by grief, uh, no doubt, and knowing that Black had been the Potter's secret keeper, he went after Black himself. Pettigrew? That fat little boy who was always hanging around after they met Hogwarts? said Madame Rosmerta. Hero worshipped Black and Potter, said Professor McGonagall. Never quite in their league. Talent wise, I was often rather sharp with him. You can imagine how I... how I regret that now. She sounded as though she had a sudden head cold. Uh, there now, Minerva, said Fudge kindly. 
Pettigrew died a, a hero's death. Eyewitnesses, uh, Muggles, of course, we wiped their memories later, uh, told us how Pettigrew cornered Black. They say he was sobbing, Lily and James serious, how could you? And then uh, he went for his wand. Well, of course, Black was quicker, blew Pettigrew to smithereens. McGonagall blew her nose and said thickly, Stupid boy. Foolish boy. He was always hopeless at dueling. I should have left it to the Ministry. I tell you, if I'd have got the black before little Pettigrew did, I would have messed... Oh. I wouldn't have messed around with wands. I'd have ripped him limb from limb. Hagrid growled. You don't know what you're talking about, Hagrid, said Fudge sharply. Nobody but uh, trained hit wizards from the Magical Law Enforcement Squad uh, would have stood a chance against Black once he was cornered. I was a junior minister in the Department of Magical Catastrophes at the time, and it was I was one of the first on scene after Black murdered all those people. I, I will never forget it. I still dream about it, sometimes. A crater in the middle of the street, so deep it had cracked the sewer below. Bodies, bodies everywhere, uh, buggles screaming, and black, standing there, laughing, with what was left of Pettigrew in front of him, a, 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 a heap of blood-stained robes and a few, uh, a, a few fragments. Uh, Fudge's voice stopped abruptly. There was the sound of five noses being blown. Oh, well, there, there you have it, Rosmetta, said Fudge thickly. Black was taken away by twelve members of the Magical Law Enforcement Squad, and Pettigrew received the Order of Merlin, first class, which I think was some comfort to his poor mother. Black has been in Azkaban uh, ever since. Madame Smyrta let out a long sigh. I wish I could say that he was, said Fudge slowly. My version of Fudge doesn't say anything slowly. He just gets to the point slowly. I certainly believe uh, his master's defeat unhinged him for a while. The, uh, the murder of Pettigrew and all those muggles was the action of a cornered and desperate man, cruel, uh, uh, pointless. Yet I, I met Black on my last inspection of Azkaban. You know, uh, most of the, the prisoners in there sit uh, muttering to themselves in the dark. There's no sense in them, but uh, I, was, I was shocked at how normal Black seemed. He spoke quite rationally to me. It was unnerving. You'd have thought he was merely bored. I, I asked if I had finished with my newspaper. Cool as you please. And he said he uh, missed doing the crossword. Yes, I, I was astounded at how little effect the Dementors seemed to be having on him. And he was one of the most heavily guarded in the place, you know, Dementors, outside his door, day and night. But what do you think he has broken out to do? 
said Madame Rosmerta. Goodness gracious, Minister, he's not trying to rejoin you-know-who, is he? I dare say that is um, uh, his eventual plan, said Fudge evasively. But we hope to catch Black long before that. I, I, I must say, you-know-who alone and uh, friendless is one thing, but hmm, uh, give him back his most devoted servant and I, I shudder to think how quickly he'll rise again. There was a small chink of glass on wood. Someone had set down their glass. You know, Cornelius, if you're dining with the headmaster, we'd better get back up to the castle, said Professor McGonagall. One by one, the pairs of feet in front of Harry took the weight of their owners once more. Hems of cloaks swung into sight, and Madame Rosmerta's glittering heels disappeared behind the bar. The door of the three broomsticks opened again. There was another flurry of snow, and the teachers had disappeared. Harry? Ron's and Hermione's faces appeared under the table. They were both staring at him, lost for words. And that is the end of chapter 10. Oof. Wow. Mind-blowing stuff. This crazy psychopath murderer. I mean, okay, I... When I was six, I was on a no-fly list. Apparently, I, uh... I shared the name with somebody, uh, I, I don't even know how famous he was, but um, I, we would go to airports, and I would, you know, be taken aside. Six years old, my family would, you know, get to the counter. By the time it happened four times or so, they were used to it. We were used to it. Um, but I get there, they see my name, and we kept being told, no fly list. That is the closest I've gotten to this. But can you imagine? Think about your parents. Think about one of your parents. And then... You find out one of your parents' best friends before he went, you know, insane was like Osama Bin Laden. The biggest the the biggest most hunted wizard in the whole world best friends with one of your parents back before something changed mind-blowing revelation and next week we're going to find out how harry is able to process this or if he's able to process this. I mean, obviously, I know the answer. I have, uh, I have done this before. <laughs> this is not my first read-through. I almost wish that it was. I almost wish I could be experiencing this at the exact same time as you guys, but uh, I do think it's better for me to know kind of what's coming so I know what to talk about, what to not, you know, talk too much about. I know how to inflect things properly. That's actually more important than I realized at first. 
listening to audiobooks, I didn't realize how important it was to find those moments to inflect properly so you're not totally missing the point of something. <laughs> That's crazy. It's not just crazy, but think about, I don't know, think about your friends. I imagine that many people who are the friends of people who have been radicalized, you know, people who have ended up joining groups of people in real life or groups online and really taken out of reality. What, what does that look like as the friend of somebody like that? I surely don't believe it's it's the friend it's the fault of the friends of that person. You know, every every person does have to be responsible for their own actions, but at the same time I think going to something like that I think it comes from it can come from a lot of loneliness and a lot of isolation and sometimes, you know, loneliness is a feeling that comes when there are people around. Sometimes isolation is a feeling that comes when People are there, but but you're not able to communicate with them properly. This is an extreme example, but I'm very much a believer in the check on your friends kind of movement. I think we're getting better at it. I'm very, very pleased to say that much like um, much like the the uh, LGBT movement suffered so much uh you know in the mid 90 or mid 1900s and uh on into the late ones you know they have made it substantially easier for the people who are dealing with it today i think we are in that transition period for mental illness where right now there are people who have to be who have to really fight to be understood um and really fight to make it a conversation that's easier to have about mental illness about the effects that you know feeling isolated can have and just generally about about considering how other people are doing mental health I guess I would say it's, it's generally easier to see when a friend is getting body sick mental health is a little harder to to gauge without having difficult conversations and so right now I'm glad that there's a movement to uh, talk to your friends I just want to echo that sentiment Rachel is asking I would want to know what made them friends to begin with and if they saw their destructive behavior coming uh, just to see them going f oh this is part of a different comment um, uh, she also says just to see them going through that joining an online group or other group yeah I don't know I don't know how visible it ever it is I don't know how visible it ever is I think for many people when I when I read about these sorts of things because I do tend to keep up with um events related to the mental health world you know you you're probably aware mental health is something that's pretty important to me it's a it's a a cause that i find very very significant i think it's a big hole in our medical understanding of the body right now um and i think there's there's 
excellent work being done to improve that. But I think it's something that's greatly misunderstood right now. Um, Rich also said, I'm glad you just talked about checking on your friends. It reminded me that I need to do that more often. Yeah, it's good to have the reminder. That's why I like it too, because, you know, like I said, it's very important to me, but I don't always remember either. It's a, It's not something that comes up, you know what I mean? Like, if somebody's, if somebody shows up at school someday with a cast on, you talk about it, you know? And you can have the conversation about, like, how is that making your life more difficult? How can I be helpful? You know, can I, can I carry your backpack for you? That's a much more easy conversation to have. But when somebody is starting to get a little dark, when, when, you know, when people are feeling a certain way about themselves or about the world, it's not like a cast. You don't get that sudden reminder, oh, this person needs some help. So yeah, if I can be a reminder to check on your friends, check on your family, um, I, I'd like to be the reminder that I need myself sometimes. I think we're probably going to have this conversation again sometime later on in the stream, um, probably toward the end of this book, when it's not so spoilery. But there are, there's, I think, definitely a, a conversation to be had, an extended conversation to be had about the depths of isolation that brings somebody to be vulnerable to groups like the Death Eaters. The followers of he who must not be named. Is that a is that a spoiler? I don't know if they've used the term Death Eater yet, so spoiler alert. <laughs> so it's important. Check on your friends. They'll appreciate it. It's gonna be an awkward thirty seconds of like, yeah, I'm I feel fine. But, uh, sometimes the answer is, you know what? Things have been tough at home. Or you know what? I'm feeling way too much pressure. I thought I, I thought I knew what I was going to do with my life and suddenly I've got no idea. Or, you know, I know somebody else who's going through a really hard time and I don't know how to help them. Especially when you're young, some of these things right now, they don't feel like things that you need to talk about. So, you know, somebody having a hard time might not just sort of open up about this sort of thing. Rachel says it didn't happen. I'm not sure what that's in reference to. I wish I didn't have to have the 20 second delay on. So I have to rewind 20 seconds exactly and figure out what that's related to. <laughs> um... But yeah, I think... Oh, is it about the Death Eaters thing? About whether or not they're called Death Eaters yet? Um, yeah, so... Uh, I don't know, lost my train of thought a little bit, but... Uh, check on your friends, and if somebody's checking on you, don't be afraid to open up a little bit. I also read recently that uh, says, essentially... Sometimes they're not, there's not like a right thing to say. So when you feel that moment of 
this person's having a hard time. I don't know what to tell them. I don't know how to help them. Sometimes it's not a matter of saying the right thing. So when you've got that instinct of like, I didn't, I don't know. Oh, it, I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Didn't happen. Not real. When you're talking to somebody, you've got that instinct of, boy, this person's going through something really difficult. I don't know what to say. Sometimes it's not about what you say. Turns out it's mostly not about what you say. It's about making sure that the person knows that you're available to listen. So if they need to put something out there, you don't need to have the answer for them. They just need to know you'll listen to it. All right. That's the stream for this week. Seemed like it went okay. Some uh, rough patches on the technical side. Some rough patches on the uh, the body health side. Got uh, my my throat fine, but being on the tail end of it, audibly a little rough. I look forward to getting back into it next week. And like I said, who knows? Who knows when uh, better internet will be at my disposal? But once it is, I look forward to having rip-roaring, high-fidelity, clean audio, excellent bitrate streams with you guys, where I can take down that 20-second delay. You know, I, I don't actually know how great the internet's going to be. I know it's going to be a significant step up in terms of numbers, but practically, when you're dealing with, you know, certain, certain uh, internet service providers, um, sometimes buying a bigger number of, of uh, upload or download speed doesn't necessarily translate. So we'll see, but I have high hopes of uh, smooth streams, no delay. You guys punch something into the chat. I'm right there, right there with a, I was going to say an answer, but uh, <laughs> I don't, I can't say that I've got those often. But a response, that's what I've got for you. A response. You know what? What I've got for you is